Hey y'all, my name is Ajay Jain. And I'm Evan DeBrew. Welcome to Civ Tech Talks, a podcast where Ajay and I chat with college students and early career professionals about their journeys to civic tech, their passions, their projects, and why people should consider utilizing technology in the civic space. So our guest today is Bob Zhao, and Bob spent six months studying abroad in the United Kingdom and exploring civic tech projects with the British's government-owned government digital service. Although Bob spent six months in London, I think Evan might have Bob beat as an Anglophile. Yeah, that's true. It's almost scary how much of an Anglophile I am. I mean, to start with, you have to start with the soccer fandom, right? Most of my friends know that I am a pretty big English professional football fan, and I avidly follow Swansea City AFC, one of three Welsh football clubs playing in the English professional pyramid. On top of that, I watch way too much British television from fancy PBS, sorry, BBC. Most recently, I watched Doctor Who, which is a television show about a time-traveling man who takes pretty ladies on adventures. No, I'm just kidding. But I would classify Doctor Who, having watched the Tenet and Smith era, as a quirky comedy show that has enough soap opera pulp to choke a telenovela. (laughs) And uh, I know I probably triggered some Whovians who may disagree with these statements, but I think they know deep down that they're true. So (laughs) I stand by them. (laughs) Well, it's a really good thing that we are not doing a podcast on science fiction, Evan. Oh my gosh, get absolutely destroyed <laughs> by people. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a lot of other stuff. I mean, there's Sherlock. I watched Agatha Christie's Poirot when I was younger. I read the books too, both, both Sherlock Holmes mysteries and Poirot mysteries. I watched Dairy Girls, which is like some BBC4 show, Downton Abbey back in the day. I've done some National History Day projects on British history, read a lot of Tolkien, and I don't mind a good scone either. I could keep going, but if I did, this podcast would be hours long. Wow, that is a lot. And to be honest, I think the only thing that I have going for me as an Anglophile, as sadistic as this might sound, is that I love flying through London Heathrow, and I also like flying on British Airways. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Yeah, actually, one one of my favorite flying memories, and it's actually right before I went to Philadelphia and that really bad flight that I told you all about in the last episode, but... I was able to get a seat on the upper deck of a Boeing 747 going across the pond from London to New York. And that's one of my favorite memories because it is not often you get to fly on the upper deck of a Boeing 747 and also fly backwards. My seat was actually facing the other way. So during takeoff, instead of like going backwards into my seat, I actually just like shot forward. But going back to you being an Anglophile, as an aspiring cook, I absolutely love watching Gordon Ramsay. And as my civic tech community knows, I might love cooking in my air fryer as much as I love coding for social good. But that still comes nowhere close to your law for Britain, though, Evan. Yeah, you know, when you said Gordon Ramsay there, I also have been watching the British Baking Show recently with my parents. Man, they really have a lot of good-looking food there. And it makes me hungry and somehow also satisfies my appetite for those desserts at the same time. Is that really possible? Yeah, (laughs) it is possible. And, you know, the British Baking Show does have some awesome desserts. I've been pretty mesmerized by what some of the contestants have baked. But Evan, do you know what is even better than the treats on the British Baking Show? I don't know. What it, what could it be? Well, our episode with Bob today, of course. 
Jay, uh, do you want to introduce Bob? I don't know, Evan. As Civ Tech Talks Anglophile, I think you should have the honors of segueing into our episode today. Alrighty then. So, Bob Zhao. On top of studying abroad and being exposed to the government digital service, Bob also has experience in civic tech through Design for America and the Civic Digital Fellowship, where he worked with the National Institutes of Health. He continues to work on the NIH's Strides Initiative while studying at Washington University in St. Louis. Awesome. Let's get this tea party started. Welcome to the podcast, Bob. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. So Bob has a very unique background compared to our first two guests. Our first two guests worked on civic tech projects at the United States government level. Bob also has that experience. However, he's also seen how the United Kingdom has worked on their own civic tech government projects while he was a student at the London School of Economics taking a study abroad year. So Bob, I really want to dive into that because I think it's a really interesting concept that makes you unique as a guest to us. How is the United Kingdom's government digital service projects different from working on civic tech projects in the United States government? Yeah, that's a great question. So the UK's government digital service is a place where a vast majority of the UK's digital delivery and civic tech operations run out of. If you can think of GDS as a government agency that specializes in digital delivery and civic tech ops, that's essentially what it is because of the way that the government's structured over there in the UK. They're able to kind of bring a lot of different operations under one roof and have a lot of really cool work come out of that as a result of some of the economies of scale that they're able to work out of. And the fact that the population of the UK is a lot smaller than the US obviously helps a little bit with that. But all in all, GDS is a really cool place and I think a really great model of what the US could maybe work towards someday. Bob, my impression of the United Kingdom's opinions towards its government institutions is that its citizens tend to view them in a more positive light than is the case in the United States, where citizens' trust in the government as a whole is pretty low. I have two questions to this point. Firstly, is this impression of the UK's government institutions right? And does this impact the culture at a federal organization like the United Kingdom's government digital service? Yeah, yeah. So I, I think this is a really great point is that civic tech doesn't stand by itself. It, it stands within a political context that affects the way that it is able to do its work. You touched on a couple pieces or a couple forces that lead into that. Like you mentioned, public buy-in is going to be a huge factor. The way that translates into how our elected officials interact with and collaborate or fail to collaborate with one another is another big factor there. GDS is and has a lot of legislative buy-in, or at least from my perspective, compared to some of the similar work that is being done in the US. And because of the fact that they're able to have support from the top and then also from the bottom, like you mentioned, because of the fact that people are a little bit more trusting of public institutions, they're able to do work in a much more centralized way. I don't think a one-to-one mapping of, of what GDS does to the UK can be kind of replicated here in the US just because of the fact that the two countries are very different. But there's a lot of, I think, stuff to learn from the way that GDS is set up that I think could really positively impact the U.S. civic tech operation. So Bob, building off that, do you think there are lessons that we can learn as civic technologists from our friends across the pond? Do they have more mature civic tech practices? That's a really good question, Ajay. I definitely think that the civic tech operation in the UK is a lot more mature, and I feel like there is a lot to learn. 
a lot of what they do is coming out of a legacy of British design that is quite established. You can actually see remnants of that on the London Tube, for instance, which is actually, a, I feel, a very intuitive system that is very well designed. And I feel like a big part of it is really just an understanding and a desire for good technology to be in government. And I feel like it's only a matter of time as the U.S. operations kind of mature from their teenage years into full adulthood uh, <laughs> that a lot of the operational and infrastructural stuff that makes GDS so effective is kind of coming down the pipeline for the U.S. Do you have any recommendations for people who would consider taking their technical skills overseas? Yeah, so generally, and of course, it's going to vary country to country, you will need to be a citizen of the country that you want to work in in order to work for the federal government. This is certainly the case in the UK, though, because of the way that UK citizenship works, you can also be a member of a Commonwealth country and work for GDS. So if you're a Canadian or an Australian listening to this, you certainly have the opportunity to apply and work for GDS. GDS also has a pretty robust uh, internship slash apprenticeship program for people who maybe are looking for in who are maybe studying in the UK. So definitely check those out. GDS also has a really robust blogging presence. And so uh, write a, a bunch of really cool articles about everything from design ops to working in government. And so definitely would recommend people check those out as well. I would also say that the civic tech community, even internationally, is really close-knit. And so if you were to look on LinkedIn, for instance, for people, they would actually be, I'm sure, glad to talk to you. The kind of contact that I had there was actually a former colleague of mine who works in DC, knew someone within the British GDS and kind of connected us and they were more than willing just to kind of talk to a student like me who was there for you know six months in my city abroad and kind of give me the lay of the land there and then kind of kept men inviting me back to various events that they had yeah i would recommend people kind of reach out on linkedin from my experience people are more than willing to talk to you yeah definitely that's something that i've noticed as being a member of the civic tech community as well even with everything being so remote the fact that so many people were willing to just chat with me for 30 minutes about what they were doing and the projects they were working on. Everything from the Obama White House to working at the ACLU. And I just think it was really fascinating stuff just to be able to pick someone's brain, whether it was a mid-career professional or a civic digital fellow who was an alumni from the year before. Being able to go to all these events and being able to network is still really fascinating. So I want to segue that into civic tech experiences in the United States. So we're kind of going from the United Kingdom back over the pond to St. Louis, Missouri, which is where you started working on civic tech projects at Washington University as a member of your college's chapter of Design for America. Bob, could you explain to us what Design for America is? Yeah, so Design for America is a national organization that works on local college campuses to leverage design as a means for social impact. The national organization runs out of Chicago, but has various chapters on what is now, I believe, 39 college campuses. And so they try to teach college students the human-centered design and use it to leverage social impact within the local communities. So that looks oftentimes like partnering with a local nonprofit or another part of the school to think about and critically examine how design can be used to have social impact. So Bob, how did you leverage social impact in Design for America specifically? Yeah, so for me, I was part of a project my first year working with a nonprofit in St. Louis that worked to rehabilitate formerly incarcerated people back into society. The nonprofit that we worked with has various clients who are coming back into the civilian world after 10 years, 10, 15 years of being away. And that transition is very jarring and oftentimes can lead to recidivism, which is kind of going back into the system as a result of not having the proper support. So my team, uh, like all good designers do, started out with this population, listening to where their pain points were and trying our best to imagine what it would look like and designing with them 
what it might look like to make that process easier. And so the intervention that we came up with was to have a series of technology workshops with the people that came through this program. Because as you can imagine, after being away for 10 to 15 years, uh, technology moves very quickly. And as a result of not having access to the civilian world over for, for a decade plus sometimes, they came out unable to apply for jobs or to bank or to do a lot of the things that you need to be able to do just to live a normal life. So our, our team worked to scope out a technology hotline slash series of workshops with them that was student-led that allowed a connection between students at WashU and also this nonprofit's group of clients that made for a really cool opportunity for us to make that transition a lot easier for the people. That Bob, I wanted to expand into something that you had actually just mentioned briefly, and I think it's a really good point. You had mentioned something that when you were designing this project that designed for America, a really good point you brought up is design with your users in mind. And that is something that is kind of beat into us again and again and again in civic tech when you're designing products that are affecting, you know, American citizens and American residents. An area that we've kind of seen a little bit of a failure of that lately is with the COVID-19 vaccine distribution. And one example I keep thinking of is my own pop-up who is in his 90s and lives in Delaware. The main sign-up system for getting a COVID-19 vaccine is via the internet. However, my pop-up doesn't have a smartphone, doesn't have a laptop, doesn't you know know how to use a computer at all whatsoever. And I kind of just keep thinking back to that failure of the technology in general, where they weren't completely designing with their users in mind. If you're trying to get a vaccine, if you're in phase 1B, you might not have the internet access. And although there is an option for you to call in specifically, that's not really publicized. And it's really hard to get that information unless you know someone who's younger. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think this is something you hear across various parts of the civic tech operation is that user research is something that is the be all and end all of whether or not your project or, or app or whatever gets off the ground. One other question we have for you about Design for America, Bob, is how did Design for America lead you onto your civic tech journey? Yeah, so obviously there is a little bit of a tie-in kind of on the social impact side of things of right. wanting to use your skills for, for good. I also had the opportunity to teach a little bit of design through a DFA, kind of the way our chapter was set up. I was in charge of kind of instructing new members of what the design process looks like and helping them along through their first project. DFA was also my kind of entryway into the world of civic tech. It was actually the place where I was able to find my first internship with the lab at OPM, but was able through DFA to kind of access the, the whole world through that first internship. DFA was also a great place for me because it is a national network. And so as a result, I was able to meet passionate students from around the country that were using design for social impact and kind of learn from and listen to all the different experiences they had in their respective college campuses. And so the kind of culmination of the access to project work, the access to the network, and then also that first internship into DC. I had a similar experience as well, except it was declaring my double major in political science as to how I got into the door of civic tech, because I wanted to utilize my computer science major for social good. And unfortunately, at the University of Illinois, we didn't really have the resources set up for utilizing tech in a social good space. I mean, we had like one student organization, I think it was Hack for mm -hmm. Impact. But I realized that it wasn't something that I completely wanted to do. And I, rather than just being in a student organization, I wanted to immerse my career in it. That's really coming to the forefront, these opportunities to blend these two fields as it becomes more and more apparent that there's a lot of need for technologists and people with these skill sets to leverage their work and their backgrounds to think about things outside of 
kind of the, tr- the traditional pathways into tech. Bob, you were able to make the step from working for Washington University's Design for America chapter to working in the Office of Personnel Management as a Design for America fellow. So while you were at the OPM, you had the chance to work on an education program for our services veterans. Can you elaborate on that experience for us and our listeners? Yeah, so just to give a little bit of context for listeners who might not know, the Office of Personnel Management is essentially the HR agency for the rest of the government. Within the Office of Personnel Management, there is a initiative called the Lab at OPM, which is essentially a team working to try and infuse human-centered design practices into the rest of government. The lab is a both a space and a practice for human-centered design in government, meaning that they contract themselves out as designers to various agencies to do design work, but then also invite people from around federal government into the lab's spaces to teach them what human-centered design is and how it can be applied to the work that they do. So like you mentioned, I was there as a Design for America fellow, and the main project that I was working with was with the Veterans Administration, um, working with VA field offices to think about and infuse design in their work. And so for me, as a web developer, we were actually trying to create a digital platform where we could share a lot of the design resources that we gathered as a team and that had been prototyped and iterated upon within a print setting, but that needed to go digital for kind of ease of proliferation and then also ease of updating and things like that. And so I was there kind of building that out over the course of the summer, working with a, a lot of different people within the VA and other designers on the lab to yeah, make that possible. So Bob, in your time at the OPM, you also got to work as a design educator. Is that right? I I did. And so like I mentioned, the work that the lab does is both a practice and a space for education. And so was able to work as a design educator with some of the clients that they worked with agencies such as the VA, like I mentioned, but then also the US Navy, the USAID, Agency for International Development and, and more. For a bit of context to this question, listeners, Bob was accepted as a CDF fellow to the 2020 summer cohort, where he worked at the National Institute of Health as a developer and product management fellow, and now is a part-time worker on the STRIDES initiative. So Bob, could you enlighten us on what the STRIDES initiative is? Yeah, I would love to. So the STRIDES initiative is a NIH-wide initiative to try and move biocomputing research onto the cloud. So for listeners who might not be aware, a lot of the NIH's computing, which supports their research on a wide variety of fields, is done on-premise, which means that there are server rooms in Bethesda, Maryland, that people have to maintain in order to do a lot of the work they need to do computing-wise. And so the Strides Initiative is tasked with trying to move a lot of that onto the cloud. Doing so has a lot of really awesome economies of scale and efficiencies that allow biocomputing to be a lot more centralized, a lot more powerful, and to kind of cut compute times down by order of magnitude. And so as a result, the Strides Initiative is working really hard to set up the infrastructure for that to happen. I was brought on over the summer to kind of work on that. Bob, I want to expand a little more into some of the work that you did at the Strides Initiative. Can you talk a little bit about what you did specifically? Yeah, so I was brought in to do some web development and think a little bit more holistically about the Strides digital identity. So right now, a lot of stuff is still being built. And as a result, the processes and resources that the Strides team has is kind of locked away in their own heads and in their own repositories. And so I was brought in alongside another fellow to try and think about a web presence that would open that up to the public. A lot of really 
complicated technological, bureaucratic, and cultural stuff that is relatively well documented within local files within the Shrines team kind of needs to be put on a website. And so we were working that over on that over the summer. I stayed on part-time, like Evan mentioned earlier, to continue working on that. Yeah, hopefully going to be able to launch that website towards the end of the first quarter of the year. And so was brought in kind of holistically to think about the Shrines Digital Identity and try to uh, open up a lot of the resources there for the general public. Bob, I think Evan and I want to back things up a little bit. So over the past few minutes, we really just dove deep into what you did at Design for America, at OPM, and at the National Institutes of Health. But now I kind of want to paint a more holistic picture. Mainly, you know, what drives you to keep working in civic tech? What are the problems that you want to work on? Why should people work in civic tech? So I think, Evan, if you want to take this away, let's get down to business. Sure. Bob, you have a very uncommon background in civic tech. We're someone our age. Not many individuals get to have three different experiences in two different countries working in the civic technology space. What keeps bringing you back to civic tech? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think a really important one. So I would highlight two main things. The first is, of course, and I think this is something that a lot of people, if you talk to them, working in civic tech will bring up is really the mission that you're working towards. The fundamental incentives in government work are very different than in industry, right? In industry, at the end of the day, your business and you need to earn money. And so as a result, uh, that's going to really shape a lot of the things you're able to do and the things that you structure and build structures around doing. In government, that's a, that's, that's a little bit different. I'm not going to sit here and say that that money is absent in government, quite the opposite. Agencies also need to earn revenue to offset costs and everything. But at the end of the day, kind of in the same spirit, government is there to serve its people. And as a result, a lot of the fundamental incentives um, are different in government. And I feel that allows government to look at larger and bigger picture problems that I feel are a lot more interesting and a lot more cool to work on. And so that kind of leads me into my second point. The problems you're solving in government are going to be a lot more far ranging they're going to have a longer time horizon than those in industry. Just because government is able to have a risk and time horizon that industry simply can't. We see examples of this in the past where government was the impetus for inventions such as the national highway system, the internet, GPS, the beginnings of the renewable energy market. All these things require just a vision into what the future can look like that government is uniquely able to provide. And so all these things kind of bring me back to government. I also think that my skill set is actually a little bit more tailored to government work just because of the fact that I really enjoy working on a project and kind of covering and wearing a bunch of different hats, touching a lot of of the different parts of the project all in one, doing a little bit of design work with the user research skills that I've built in the past. Of, Of course, the technological stuff that I'm doing as a web developer, but then also thinking about product and strategy across what this looks like. You are oftentimes in government kind of tasked with wearing all those hats kind of in tandem. And the opportunity to do that is actually quite exciting for me. If I were to summarize the kind of wicked problems of our generation, the climate changes, the economic inequalities, those are the things that government is really trying to tackle. I mean, for me, the mission keeps bringing me back to being able to utilize my technological skill set for, you know, causes that I believe in, and even in governmental problems that I think that I could, you know, pitch my skill sets towards solving are what keep bringing me back to civic tech every day. A really interesting point that you brought up is that there are some awesome problems that you get to solve. When I've talked a little bit about working in civic tech to other computer science students, they initially have this impression that government projects are boring, that you're bogged down with bureaucracy. And to an extent, that is kind of true. But I think there's also a huge amount of bureaucracy that exists in Silicon Valley. In fact, when I was working at Facebook, 
I probably accomplished a tenth of what I did at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services when I was working at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. And equivalently for the same thing when I was working at the Texas Democratic Party. And those problems that I got to solve, which were mainly, you know, increasing the speed of accessing very important data points, whether it was COVID-19 case and test metrics in the Medicare system or accessing and analyzing donation trends at the Texas Democratic Party, were problems that were both way more important and had, had a much bigger impact on the organization that I was working for. And they were also able to shape both government policy and the actions of a political organization. And I think that was something that was really cool. Another thing that I want to add is that your skill set definitely gets stretched when you are working in government. Like, for example, for me, I do have a data background, but I had to go ahead and learn a bunch of other skill sets and wear different hats at sometimes just to, you know, solve technical problems. And it allowed me to gain a lot of experience in things that I didn't have experience in prior to working at that job. And I'm really thankful for those. I think within government circles, technologists are rare. And so the outcome of that is that you are really tasked with tremendous responsibility, but then also tremendous opportunity to use a lot of your different skill sets to try and get your projects across the finish line. Bob, speaking of tremendous skill sets, are there any problems that you want to take your tremendous skill set and tackle in the future? Yeah, I appreciate that. I, I think it would be really cool to look into how the government is really addressing and engaging with big picture inequality issues of our time, the lack of economic opportunity that I feel have been kind of brought to the forefront over the past couple of years um, would, I feel, be really cool for me to tackle. I think there is a lot of opportunity there for government to leverage design skill sets, to leverage technology skill sets, to think about what a possible range of solutions might look like and find that to be a place that I would love to go into. I will say, however, that kind of no matter where you land, I think this is generally true across both government and in industry, the team that you're working with is also super important, whether or not the people around you value what you do, and then also allow you and put you in a position to succeed. Bob, as our final question, it's a question we ask everyone who comes on the show. We want to know, why should people work in civic tech? Yeah, so I'm actually going to cheat a little bit and answer a slightly different question. Stealing a line from my favorite Pixar film, Ratatouille. Not everyone should be a civic technologist, but a civic technologist can come from anywhere. And I think that really encapsulates this idea that government work is hard and the skill sets that you need in government to succeed maybe don't fit everyone's background. But that doesn't mean that we can't work to try and get as many people into civic tech as possible. But I will say that if you are someone who is a little bit disgruntled by the state of how government works and wants to see and be part of the change of trying to make that better, I feel like that is kind of a prerequisite across the board to work in civic tech. An example of this, I feel, is that, you know, implementation oftentimes of policy is an afterthought, but is super important in the way that a piece of legislation actually gets off of the congressional floor and onto and into the lives of people. The way that gender is coded within a database at the Census Bureau, either as a Boolean or as a string, has like an actual impact on the way that people experience and understand a service. And so if you are someone who has a deep appreciation for those problems and sees the ways in which, you know, bad implementation has, you know, maybe negatively affected people and want to be a part of the change, I feel that that is a great thing to have coming into civic tech. Secondly, I'll say, and I'll offer up another metaphor maybe to kind of paint this picture, is do you want to build something that's going to outlive you? The image that actually comes to mind, there is a project in the Midwest somewhere called the world's largest ball of paint, where essentially someone started off with a ball of paint left over from one of his projects and thought it was cool. And so gradually over time added another layer and another layer and another 
and another layer to it until over time it got quite big. Now it's a national attraction where you can actually drive up and add your own layer of paint to this giant ball. And I think that's actually a really great metaphor for what government is. It's a giant ball of paint that has been worked on by generations of people to try and build something that hopefully will outlive you, right? The individual layer of paint that you put on the ball might not get celebrated, but it's going to contribute to something larger that's going to outlive you, hopefully. If you are excited by and want to see and help build something that's going to outlive you, Civic Tech is definitely a place where you can find that. I'll close off with one last thing. If you are excited by problems that aren't just technically challenging, but have an equally compelling and important human component, Civic Tech is definitely a place where you can find those problems, where you can come to work every day and be stretched kind of technically, but then also personally and creatively to try and solve some of these really complex and hard issues alongside other people who are working passionately to do the same. You find that in Civic Tech. Thank you all for listening to our third episode of Civ Tech Talks. Special thanks to our guest, Bob, for being on the podcast this week. We plan on releasing more episodes in the coming weeks, so please follow us on your favorite podcast platform. Please give us a follow on Twitter or Instagram at Civ Tech Talks. Thanks, y'all. Thank you.